This is the IBJ podcast for the week of June 19th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. As Jim Carpenter tells it, he was an unemployed bird watcher in 1981 when he decided to open a feed store in Broad Ripple called Wild Birds Unlimited. Today, there are 365 franchise locations in the chain founded by Carpenter and his wife, Nancy. And the couple has a jaw-dropping new roost for watching birds. In 2021, they bought a former golf course in northern Zionsville so it could slip back into its natural state. The decision to buy the 215-acre Wolf Run Golf Club for $5.5 million was a bit of a gamble. The Carpenters were banking on Zionsville officials to buy the land from them, albeit at a discount from their purchase price, so it could be a town nature park. It took about two years, but the town council agreed last month to free up funds to pay $4.5 million for the land, which is now assessed at $6 million, and another $1 million to help prepare for its launch as Carpenter Nature Preserve. Jim and Nancy Carpenter have for years practiced this kind of conservation philanthropy. They hosted the IBJ podcast outside of Wolf Run's old clubhouse amid a cacophony of songbirds for an interview to discuss why they took a chance on buying the golf course, how they'll stay involved with the preserve, and how they envision the property evolving. They also provide an update on how Wild Birds Unlimited fared during the pandemic, riding the sudden wave of interest in backyard recreation. Here's our conversation. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Jim and Nancy Carpenter. Thank you for inviting me to the preserve. Uh, thank you, Mason. We're glad to be here. Before we really get into this, just for the benefit of the listeners, describe the preserve. How has this property changed in five years? Well, this is a former golf course, Wolf Run Golf Course. Maybe people are familiar with it. It was a very difficult golf course, one of maybe the top 10 ranked difficult golf courses in the country. And it's a beautiful piece of property. It's 216 acres. It's just full of nature, hills, and two-thirds of a uh, mile of Eagle Creek runs through it. Lots of different habitats. It's just, it's a treasure. Jim, did you have something Yeah. So, I, I mean, I just always say there's at least 30 ecosystems here. When you look at, you know, the potential this has for being incredible nature preserved for uh, wildlife, birds, insects, flowers, uh, so forth. But it's also going to be an incredible place for people just to come and take a stroll and enjoy the nature and uh, just get away from it uh, for a few minutes. As I remarked, uh, before the interview started, I, I was wondering if this is what my backyard would look like if I just stopped mowing. <laughs> uh, it probably is, yes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm seeing a, a lot of what I'm assuming uh, are natural grasses, uh, seeing a lot of shortish, I guess, immature trees. The roads are, are kind of crumbly, uh, you know, what were roads, you know, for a golf course. What kind of birds would I am I hearing? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I think we know that there's been we've listened to over like 50 species at one time. So there this is incredible for a habitat. You'd have to have, be a pretty sharp birder, though, to pick that up. 
We didn't personally do it. <laughs> we had a really, really good birder friend come out and and figure out the species here. But uh, yeah, it, it's just uh, there's woodland birds, grassland birds, there's some rare birds. Um, it's just, uh, it's fabulous. Yeah, Nancy, you said when you showed up, you saw a bald eagle fly over. Yeah, And then we have uh, resident uh, red-tailed hawks that, that are here nesting somewhere. We don't know where it is. We have uh, red-headed woodpeckers that are living here and, and kind of the old, uh, where the dead ashes are from all the, the ashes dying. Uh, we have uh, a neat grassland bird called a dick sisle. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> you know, I might have. If it's a, what's that the, uh, the the game about birds? I know you guys know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, yeah. What is the game migration about? is it migration? No, it's not. I know which one. one you mean. Okay, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they they kind of <clears throat> say their own name when they make a call. You know, Dick Dick Sissel, and so that's a neat grassland bird. But we also found a uh, bird that's kind of rare in Boone County. It's called the blue grosbeak, and they're nesting here. And that was a you know rarely known occurrence. So they found it, and they and they are setting up uh, housekeeping here, which is pretty cool. And you mentioned there were maybe thirty different ecosystems. Can you give me just a sense yeah. of like what those would be? So you start down at the uh, the Eagle Creek. So you've got everything that lives in the water, and then everything on the banks, and then you've got everything in the floodplain. And then you go up the ravines. You've got the wooded ravines, and that could have salamanders in the drainage areas there. Uh, and all the different wild uh, flowers that live inside of woods. You've got the woods with the big trees, uh, ecosystems up in the trees for the birds and the bats uh, and insects, uh, which is very important because the oak trees and hickory trees are kind of the, that's where all the, the moths lay their eggs and they make the little caterpillars. And that's what all the songbirds use to feed their babies. That's the bottleneck for songbirds is actually insects. So the chickadees that come to your bird feeder and eat sunflower seeds, well, they need about a thousand uh, little caterpillars per baby. And they have six babies they have to feed over two weeks. So they have a lot of caterpillars. So that's what those trees are doing is, is a place for the moths to, to lay their eggs in the, in the caterpillars to hatch. So then you've got the grasslands, like I said, with the grassland birds, like the dick sisal, uh, the meadowlarks, which are actually declining. And so we love to have meadowlarks out here. Uh, we would love to see bobolinks there. Uh, we haven't seen any, but this could be a good place for them to come back. And so, you know, just there, you know, I could probably keep on listing, but it gives you an idea of, of the, of all the different uh, ecosystems. So yeah, it's 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 a a welcoming place for wildlife to be able to rest and have a home and reproduce. And as as the suburbs are spreading this direction, there we're losing places like this. So we're really happy to be able to provide this for the wildlife. So what then is the vision? I don't know, five ten years. Uh, what will be here that is near right now? Well, we have been working for two and a half years with the town of Zionsville to actually turn this into a town park. And so um, actually then the process is getting closer and closer. They passed, the town council passed a resolution of, to put out some bonds to sell and then buy, they will buy the property from us and then it will be a town park. Uh, but about a year and a half ago, the, the town also funded a master planning session in which the entire master plan for this as a park was laid out. So they have a pretty neat roadmap of what to do. So their first thing they will do with the funds that, that are going to be available is to make it open for people, basically roads, parking lots, bathrooms, and trails. 
So that'll be the first stage. And then the second stage will be maybe who knows how many years it would take to fundraise and get the money for a nature center that would then just be a spectacular place to come out and be the headquarters for a, a, a nature experience. Other things, other assets here would ultimately be, besides trails, of course, an outdoor classroom, possibly a, a little campground that scouts could come and use, tree houses, natural playgrounds for kids. Um, let's see. Oh, an amphitheater. So there's just limitless possibilities, and it will all be passive recreation, no active recreation, no ball fields or anything like that, no lights. Uh, so no giant water slides, no, no flumes. No. No. <laughs> okay. no. Explain to me how you were brought into this uh, by the, the town of Zionsville. Did it start with a phone call? In a way, I'll, I'll just make a short story long. How about that? I'll <laughs> <laughs> Great for a podcast. <laughs> so 20 years ago, Nancy was a volunteer with the Zionsville Park Department, and she went door to door trying to find land that people would sell or donate to the park. And she was very successful and found quite a few donors uh, or sellers of land. So she was successful in that. And she had started a little foundation uh, with the community foundation that was for green space. And it was called the Green Space Foundation. So she had a little bit of money left in that. And so she called the mayor of Zionsville, Emily Styron, and told her, hey, did you know we have I don't know, it was like 12,000 12, bucks. Wasn't a huge still, amount. You can do something with it. But and I want to make sure the parks or somebody could use it in the, you know, for the town for green space. And Emily had been talking to Stan Burton, the, the previous owner, but the current owner at that time of the Wolf Run Golf Course. And she her vision was that, boy, wouldn't it be great if this could be a town park? But the town couldn't come up with the funds and the time that was going to be needed to do it. But she didn't know when she invited us out to take a hike that we would get involved. She just thought, well, Nancy has has a vision for parks and maybe she could help me figure this out. So after we hiked it with Emily and Stan, this was two and a half years ago, almost three years now. We just looked at each other and said, this place has to be saved. And, you know, we, we spent our entire adult life uh, trying to save land, working with the Nature Conservancy. We're both trustees with the Indiana Nature Conservancy. And so we've recognized that this was a prime piece of land to be saved in this part of the state because everything's pretty much going to be developed and there would never be another chance like this again. So we uh, decided we would gamble and buy the property and kind of just hope things would work out with the town. <laughs> so that was that was kind of the risky element. So truly, it was a gamble. I mean, there's it no was. guarantee. No, there was no guarantee that, I mean, at all. That you would spend $5 million to buy it from Stan. And then hopefully, <laughs> exactly. it would, you would be able to sell right. it to the city or to sell it to the That's town. Right. But, if, That's right. but if that didn't happen, you would be okay. But it, I mean, I don't know, Nancy. I mean, to us, it made so much sense that the town would come through. Yeah, we were really optimistic that how could they, you know, not take an opportunity like this for a piece of land on the northern border of Zionsville. They really need to connect Eagle Creek. It's it's a, you know, waterway. It protects our our clean water resources. And we thought, sure, 
this is this is a no-brainer. But it turned out to be a little more difficult than we had originally thought. We kind of sweated it out for a couple of years, wondering if the council would would uh, allow for the bonds. And uh, ultimately, they did. It was a six-to-one vote by the council, and so we were thrilled, just thrilled. <laughs> so, so were you at, at the vote? I mean, yes. were you sitting there yes. in, oh, the, yeah. in oh, yeah. the front row? Like, what? Oh, well, close. Sweating, yeah. definitely. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's so, crazy. But, yeah, the town came through, and, and but what really was neat was happening. We, we always said from the beginning it would be a bargain sale. We would donate part of the cost that we had paid, you know, as a donation to the town when they bought it from us. But then uh, Jared Logston, who is the park uh, superintendent for Zionsville, he became kind of like the, I call it the quarterback in the center that kept everybody connected, the park board, the town council, us. And then he went out and applied for grants, uh, which are called next level grants. So he was able to get a $3 million payback through the next level grants that when they buy it from us, then the uh, next level grants which came from the federal government through the state DNR, that they will get paid back $3 million. Mm-hmm. So that was like then, it worked that out was just great. Incredible timing that because, those were available. Yeah, they had to have a match. They had to have a match, and so the bargain sale was the match. So again, you bought it for five million and five and a half. Five and oh, five and a half million. Yeah. Okay. And then you sold it to the town for how much? Well, it was our our donation was a million and a half off of the appraise. So by the time they got around to kind of making a, a deal with us. Uh, it was up to six million. <laughs> oh, the appraised value. So the appraised value. <laughs> yeah. So they're they're going to buy it for about four and a half. Okay, that's the that's yeah. that's the contract, right? <laughs> okay, and then they will be able to do that pretty soon. Uh, yeah, because yeah, they'll they'll the bonds are five and a half million. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then they'll they'll spend uh, you know part of that will go to buy it from us, and the rest will be for development. Okay, so you bought it for five point five. Yeah, you're gonna. Sell it for four point five. So your million dollars is a contribution, essentially. Right. Exactly. Uh, but it's really a million, million and a half because it was uh, oh, appraised at six. Gotcha. Okay. Well, one other thing we did announce to the council that we're going to be uh, placing a half a million dollars into the Zionsville Parks Foundation for the care of this property through the years. It's probably not big enough to be a true endowment, but certainly will help uh, as projects come along for rehabilitating the property well and that's a whole other story uh emily the mayor made another big ask of nancy she asked nancy well can you start a a zionsville park foundation and so nancy (laughs) said yes so you spent two years now Well, there wasn't anything else to do during the (laughs) pandemic so (laughs) so it's not easy to start a foundation get the board members have all your board meetings and then start you know, just all the machinery Get the that, 501c3, but it's all in play. Five hundred one c three status, and yeah. you know, but we've got a great board. She's got and, it all in uh, place for uh, for for donations to happen, and so it's really an incredible asset as well. So, uh, when did you buy it? February twenty twenty one. Okay, so it's been more than uh, two years. Yeah. So, so in the meantime, have you been you been involved in maintaining the property? As such, what what would that entail? Oh, that that's just been fun. I got to buy all my boy toys. I got a pickup, an ATV, <laughs> a pull behind mower. You know, that's so we just have fun uh, uh, mowing. You know, we pull, we use the ATV to pull a mower behind it. <clears throat> Mostly keep the old cart pass open, so then it's easy to just take a a, a, a stroll. 
you know, or a, a hike. And so uh, that's really what we do is just keep it hikeable because yeah. it would all be overgrown. You're not preserving like the fairways. You're oh, just, no, just we're not doing the, the fairways. Guys. No. Well, no. we love to bring out people who are interested in the property, uh, like the council and the parks board people and, you know, any other, you know, potential donors, friends, because we just love people to come out and, and fall in love with it. Now, this is, is not your first large scale contribution, obviously, to the nature scape of central Indiana. Tell me if I'm right. You previously donated a parcel of land at the Brown County Nature Conservancy. Well, it, it was just some acreage down uh, near Brown County State Park on uh, southeast. No, let's see. Yeah. Southeast side of it that we just donated to the Nature Conservancy, the Indiana Nature Conservancy. And they have a Brown County Hills project that that just fit in nicely with. How big a piece of land was that? That was about 50 acres. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and there's one other project. Uh, you provided money to create the Wild Birds Unlimited Native Pollinator Meadow. We did. In a formal gravel pit at Newfields mm -hmm. between the canal and the 33-acre lake in the uh, 100 acres uh, exactly. We, we yeah. Specifically called the Virginia Bee Fairbanks Art and Nature Park. Yes. That's right. Okay. And that was an exciting project. Uh, Nancy is on the uh, board of trustees at the Newfields. And so we had learned that they had a really big vision for creating a pollinator meadow. And they did need funding for it. And so we jumped in and said, yeah, we'll help out. And we did, and so now it's called the Wild Birds Unlimited uh, Native Pollinator Meadow, and uh, that's our company. And we want to thank all of our customers uh, th throughout North America who have helped us uh, be able to do that. And it's kind of fun. Uh, just a week ago was our 40th anniversary of starting the franchise company uh, in Broad Ripple, where you said, Mason, you went to high school. That's correct, Broad Ripple. so did Nancy. And actually, uh, in, in a few days, it's our 40th wedding anniversary as well. You have to tell me the story. If, if you could keep it short, that'd be great. <laughs> tell, me the, tell me the story of how you started that, the, the first one, the concept, because I mean, I have, I have the sense that it's fairly dramatic. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I was an unemployed bird watcher. There you go. <laughs> I I'd gotten a master's degree up at Purdue and uh, I decided there weren't any jobs for professors. So I didn't want to go on and get a PhD and, and not really be able to get a job. So, but I was in the ag school, which led me to believe that, you know, you can use science for business. And uh, so, I, but I did get a job running a little garden center for a couple of years. And then after I left that, I was an unemployed bird watcher, and I thought, well, you know, they're really, uh, uh, bird feeding is not treated as a true hobby. It's treated as, as something you put in between fertilizer and, and pesticide season at the hardware store, you know, in the winter, basically. And we're, and we're gonna put really crummy stuff because it's a handout, so why would anybody wanna spend any money on quality stuff? But I decided that actually it is a hobby and that people deserve to have good advice and good uh, equipment and good food. So that's when I started Wild Birds Unlimited uh, in uh, 1981. And it was in Broad Ripple, and that was back when you could still find something fairly inexpensive to rent. And I did, and I got, I got a year's lease because 
because she was the, the landlady wasn't too confident that I could last longer, and that's all the money I had. So <laughs> like bird feed store. Exactly. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. And then uh, turned out a couple of years later, we actually started franchising. There were people that wanted to do what I was doing, so we said, "Okay, let's let's start the franchise." That's a, such an interesting sort of pivot point. Because a lot of people would, would think, hey, we're doing pretty well. Let's open more of these that we can own. But your thought was instead to franchise them. It was because I didn't have any money. And back then it was still the interest rates were like 20 percent. So, you, you know, I couldn't borrow any money. So that franchising allows someone to own their own business. So in essence, you're using their assets to propagate your business further. And then you have a relationship where you're the franchisor, they're the franchisee, and we provide services that help them succeed in their own business. So that's really what I thought I was going to be able to do. And and that's what we did. This is horrible, but I just realized that <laughs> what you're doing is you're seeding, literally seeding uh, other people's businesses. Absolutely. You're, you're, help, you're helping. Yes. We love, you're, you're we love bird food puns. You've, you've established yes. <laughs> a root system, perhaps. And then, and then you are helping other people create their own organism, right. if you will. Right. Somebody should shoot me before I keep going. But anyway, yeah. So now we have about uh, 365 stores all across. 365? All across the U.S. and Canada. Wow. Yeah. And all of those except the original one are franchises. They're all franchises. I'm a franchisee of myself. Oh, okay. I got So you. the franchisor doesn't own any franchise, uh, any stores. Okay. Do, do the individual franchisees, do they technically own the store? They they own their business. They own their business, and they are the, then they have a, a um, basically an agreement that they can use all the trademarks, our our business methodologies, our our uh, sources of products, sell our name brand products, all that type of stuff is what the license is. Mm. And then you are uh, CEO and founder of the business, right? Wild Birds Unlimited. Is there any other Inc. appellation there? Okay, Inc. <laughs> right, which. Uh, exists to franchise right. the concept. Right. Uh, and then revenue comes to you in the form of sales royalties right. from your yeah. individual franchisees. Yes. In addition to some sort of fee that they pay at the beginning. Yes. Okay. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our interview with Jim and Nancy Carpenter of Wild Birds Unlimited. I saw on the website, so it, it costs, it typically costs between two hundred and three hundred fifty thousand dollars for a franchiser to a franchisee e. uh, to get one of these going. Right. Um, and, and then you provide all, all the uh, intellectual property that they need to do that, um, all the processes. Cause that, that seems to me to be the hard thing about starting a business is knowing the processes. We actually have a staff of 55 people up at our Carmel office. And so we have everybody from coaches that help them learn to be retailers. We have an entire, uh, marketing and advertising team that creates all the ads 
and help support uh, marketing and advertising. We have two full-time, well, actually one and a half now, uh, naturalists who help them learn about the birds in their region and help them be really good advice givers to our customers. We have a whole IT section because basically, you know, we've had to go from old desktop point of sales and cash registers, you know, to now it's all cloud-based point of sale. Uh, We have people that help you figure out what the store looks like and and where do you get the fixtures and all that kind of stuff. So it's got an entire team that helps people be a retailer so they can focus on, you know, finding customers and then keeping the customers. Do you think that there was a just a massive unmet need 40 years ago for people who wanted, you know, to to be basically backyard birders, but there just wasn't, you know, an outlet for that? Well, initially it was really slow growth for us. We put did about five stores a year for about six years. And then it was really in the 90s when it took off. And I think that's when I'd say it was kind of like the, an unmet need. And even just knowledge that such a store existed happened because, you know, people didn't know that you could have a bird feeding store. And uh, so it was really the 90s is when it took off. And interestingly, during the pandemic, it really did well because people were at home and they needed to feel in touch with nature and they needed something to do outside of their window. And um, it was a real connection and I think lifesaver for a lot of people to be able to feed the birds. Well, that's what I was that's what I was going to ask about is it seems like, you know, as opposed to maybe something like a restaurant uh, that you might be located next door to in, in a large, you know, uh, anchored shopping center. It, pandemic must have been more of a mixed bag for you guys because, <clears throat> uh, I mean, as as we were told over and over, people were really interested in the pandemic, if they could, to really invest in their outdoor areas. And that how, how did you guys see that? Well, fortunately, we were ready to go with an online ordering system. And each store actually has their own store, but it's all branded Wild Birds Unlimited. But we, it's a true omni-channel uh, experience where their customers can go to their store and it's, it's their regional bird food that we have different bird foods that are better in some parts of the country at their local price. So we had that already figured out. And all we had to do is add curbside as an option instead of delivery. And so that's how we were really able to, to, you know, we were ready for the pandemic. We didn't know it, but we were ready to switch and with a little bit of programming, enable our website to, to work for the customer. And so the customers all learn very quickly to go to the website or they could call us and, and do that as well. But uh, so that really enabled us to, to prosper, you know, and meet the business and demand that we had. I think, yeah, the last time that we'd, we'd done a significant story on Wild Birds Unlimited was 2013, and you were in the midst of kind of a refocusing uh, of the store, maybe away from tchotchke-related outdoorsy stuff and really focusing, honing in on seed. Do, do I remember that correctly? Uh, you're absolutely right. And so what we had found was that uh, focusing on selling bird food is, as you know, it seems kind of silly that we should have to say that. But, you know, what happens is, is the bird food changes through the years, but it can be kind of fun to get the, uh, the gift items or the garden items with bird and butterflies and all that. And sometimes a store owner, franchisee would focus too much on that because it's kind of fun. And then they really wouldn't be as good of a, an advice giver of bird feeding. And so we once we changed that around and we started uh, really focusing 
on how do I work with each customer as an individual because every yard is different. And they could be in an established uh, you know, uh, sub suburb with big trees, or they could be a brand new one that was a cornfield a year ago. So when we work and with each customer to help them figure out what are your birds going to be, how do we put the feeders on poles or whatever, and then how do we, if they've got raccoons, how do we keep them off of it? And so once we do that and we focus even more on product innovation in our bird foods and the bird uh, feeding uh, feeders, that that was really the way to go. We need to just focus on. We still have a lot of gift and garden items, but it, but we just we keep them in balance, and and so that really did work out. But you by that time had that online infrastructure already developed. You were ready to go. It's very easy to order, and you were specifically ordering from your local store. From the local, so yeah, actually, you're the people you go and see inside the store. They're the ones who pack the box, and and it's their and it's their seed that they've gotten within the last week. It's all as fresh as could be. Now, the, the problem I've tried to forget, but I, I will never forget <laughs> with the pandemic was supply chain, uh, getting the stuff that, that you need to your store, whatever, whatever. And I know that you guys were recognized by, it was a franchise industry organization for supply chain innovation. Uh, what did you guys do during the pandemic to make that work? Well, there were store owners who actually couldn't go into their store. There were a couple that couldn't do curbside or anything, but because they had the online store, our, their customers could order from them on the online store. And we had a vendor who then was shipping from, it's kind of North Central Ohio, was shipping anywhere they needed it shipped. And so we quickly went, and there were about maybe 50, 60 stores who, who absolutely had to have that. They couldn't go in. They, you know, could be, there were some laws where they couldn't go in or they, their staff, you know, just didn't want to come in or work. And so that that kept oh, the store itself was the was store itself was totally closed. Yeah. So that kept them in business and was a really major impact for the franchisees that were enabled to do that. Did you lose any operators like long term from the from the pandemic? No, I think I think uh, actually it did, you know, made a few people just think about, is it time to retire and sell? So we, we did a lot of uh, transfers actually a couple of years ago was a big year of transfers, but that also could have been, we, we started what we called 1WBU, which was really catching up with all the visual presentation. Everybody had to have the same loyalty club and the same point of sale. And so I, you know, it was just time to do it. And that was also when some people go, nah, I've been doing this for 10, 15, 20 years. The next owner can do that. So we we sold a lot, uh, a lot of transfer, but so they're all transfer, happy. it's just a transferring yeah, just ownership. From, from ownership from, from one to another. Or do you have more stores now than you did before the pandemic? Yeah, probably about uh, maybe 25. And I think when we talked to you in 2013, the rate of stores opening maybe about 10 a year or so? That's, we're still about that. Is that about that? Still? Yeah, brand okay. new stores. We call them vanilla box stores because you go into a strip center and that's what you get. So, yeah, maybe about 10 of those a year. And uh, and we're anywhere from about oh, 20 to 30 transfers a year. So, the latest challenge is now, I don't even know what we call it anymore, inflation. Uh, and, and interest rates are going up. Does something like that, I mean, the the increase in lending rates affect the number of people who would be able to open a store. It can have 
some effect on that. There's a lot of people are finding creative ways to even use their 401ks to uh, finance a store. So they're they're you know it's out they're kind of self financing in a way with that. They're I mean all, there's the home equities that people can use too, which does have the current interest rate. So, but it's I I wouldn't say that's a major factor for us, uh, but. Um, maybe individually there are for some, and I, I just don't know, but uh, it, it hasn't really been a problem. How long are you guys going to keep at this? Um, you know, we're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the greatest thing, and I always want to mention, is I have an incredible team at our, and we call it the Franchise Support Center. And they are fabulous at taking care of business. And, and we, you know, so we have really good expertise in franchising and all the legal and everything goes with that. And uh, so I call out my uh, chief development officer, his name is Paul Pickett, and he's in charge of that. And then my COO, her name is Amy Moore, and she's been with us uh, almost 30 years now as well. So, you know, we're just having fun and, and I'm in no hurry. I'm just enjoying uh, what we're doing. I have to ask you guys, how old are you? I'm 70. And I'm uh, 67. I'm hoping I'm going to retire by 70. But you guys are good. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think good. when you really, really love what you're doing, and it's it's our passion, you know, and save the songbirds. That's, that's our mission right now. And uh, it's, you know, Jim loves what he does. He's creative. He's visionary. He spends his days off out on the deck figuring out how to tweak bird feeders or uh, foil raccoons. He's, this is just his passion. So I, I can't imagine him ever be, being fully retired. I think he'll be like the Orville Redenbacher of <laughs> bird feeding. <laughs> My thanks again to Jim and Nancy Carpenter. IBJ's Daniel Bradley has a story about the Nature Preserve Project on the front page of the latest issue of IBJ, which you can also find at IBJ.com. And here are a few other stories from the new issue I'd like to draw to your attention. Here's a question for you. Who do you think is responsible when a hospital sends a patient's diagnosis to the wrong person and that person immediately posts the diagnosis on Facebook? IBJ's John Russell has the details from a privacy case involving an Indianapolis resident that has made its way to the Indiana Supreme Court. Also in this week's issue, Peter Blanchard explains how the state is investing in Warsaw, Indiana, in order to help preserve its critical mass of orthopedic device firms. And IBJ's latest edition of the Corporate 100 ranks the largest public and private companies in the state. And again, you can find these features in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at IBJ.com. And I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you are a subscriber. And you might not know that we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories columns and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business, and now works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth 
anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Thank you.